If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 14. We are now going to be halfway through the book of Matthew. We've made it to chapter 14 out of 28, so we're halfway done with the book of Matthew. And this will actually be our last sermon before, like Paul said, we're going to take a break to uh, go over some Christmas services, which are going to be a beautiful time to just celebrate all that this season has for us, um, celebrating the birth of Christ. And so we'll jump back in next semester into the book, uh, back into the book of Matthew. Today, I, my prayer for us, I'm just going to come out and say it from the beginning. Today, my prayer for our church is that this text, this story in Scripture would change the way that you see the whole world. Like the miracle that we're about to see Jesus do, that it would actually change the way that you see yourself. It would change the way you see Jesus. It would change the way that you encounter the world around you. And we're going to see in chapter 14 that Jesus does a miracle that displays his divine power, his divine compassion for the world. I believe it shows us who Jesus is, and I think it gives us some key insight of, like, what does it mean to live as a follower of Jesus right now? Like, in the world around us, what does it mean to, what does it look like to follow Jesus? For the disciples, it is going to change how they view Jesus. It's going to change the way that they view the world. But we've got some work to do, so we've got, we got to get after it. We've got a lot to cover today. If you remember last week, if you were here last week, Ryan taught us that John the Baptist, we hear back from John the Baptist, but it's actually not good news. John the Baptist is actually beheaded. And this was one of Jesus' closest friends. And our story picks up with Jesus hearing the news of the death of one of his closest friends. So we pick up in verse 13 this morning. It says this, chapter 14, verse 13. When Jesus heard about it, the death of John the Baptist, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. What happens when Jesus hears the news that his, his close friend died? He responds well, like a human, right? He's probably grief-stricken. He is sad, and what does he want to do? He wants to get away. His good friend, his relative, partner in ministry, has been killed, and Jesus, I'm sure, is feeling all of the emotions. And so Jesus gets in a boat, and the Bible tells us that he goes to a remote place. This can be translated as, like, he went to the desert. He went to to be in solitude, to a quiet place, to a lonely place. He went to the wilderness. And this is not new for Jesus. If you've been here, if you've been with us, if you've been in the book of Matthew, if you know kind of the life of Christ, this is something that he does pretty regularly, right? Like something happens to Jesus and he's like, you know what, I just need to go away for a minute and just get away from the crowds, get away from the people. He goes into the wilderness to get away from his situation. But the, you, need to, you need to catch something here. Jesus doesn't go into the wilderness. He doesn't hear the news and go in the wilderness to distract himself. He doesn't, like, go to the disciples like, oh, man, this is, this is a tough situation. I just, I just need to get away for a little bit, you know, grab a beer, go play some video games. Just distract myself. I just need a, I just need a beach day. Just need a spa day. The world's too much right now. I just want to, 
just want to get away and distract myself from the cares of the world. He didn't go into the wilderness to like run away from pain. Jesus goes into the wilderness to get alone to run to God with his pain. He isn't running away from what he's feeling. He's trying the best he can to run to God with his feelings. He went to a quiet place to be with his dad, Abba, his father. He just had to get alone and be with God for a moment. He removed everything else to remind himself, who is God and who am I? Jesus is modeling something for for his disciples and for us today. He's modeling this practice of solitude. Like when the world gets too heavy, to remove everything else and remind yourself of what is true. Who is God and who am I? And this is, we see that this is actually where Jesus like finds a lot of his strength. The disciples catch this. They even ask him like, man, what, how should we be doing, how should we pray? How should we get alone with God? This is where Jesus roots himself. This is like his superpower. To like get away from everything else and to spend time in the presence of God. He finds his identity not on a platform, but in like a prayer closet. When he gets alone in the wilderness and gets with God, he finds his identity. And this is so key to our discipleship. Like as imitators of Christ, this is is a key practice for us. We learn that... to live a life filled with the Spirit, there are times where we must go into the wilderness. We need to get alone, not to distract ourselves, but to focus ourselves. To get alone with God. Not to run away from our problems, but to run to God with our problems. And as humans, like, I don't know if you're like me, you will feel anxious, you will feel tempted, you will feel grief-stricken. You are going to experience things like Jesus did a death of a friend, something tragic in your life. And the temptation, if you're like me, is to try to distract yourself by like just numbing and soothing the pain. Binge watch Netflix. Go to the beach. Watch football. Maybe, maybe for you it's like working really hard. I'm just going to grind. I'm just going to get to work. Anything to soothe this disappointment. But Jesus models and shows us what exactly we need to do when we're faced with disappointment and grief. We need to run to the Father. Get alone and get with God. Be quiet, listen. Be still and know that he is God. That is what Jesus is doing here. But Jesus doesn't get what he wants here. Something happens in verse 13 that derails Jesus trying to go away to get with God. Look with me in verse 13 of what happens. When the crowds heard this, so when they heard that Jesus was getting in a boat to go away, they followed him on foot. If you didn't know, it's a little bit like you're a little bit slower than a boat. So they had to like run across this lake. They followed him on foot to the towns. And so when he came ashore, he saw a large crowd. Jesus gets in a boat to be alone, and he steps off the boat. And rather than being met with restorative time alone with God, like nourishment for his soul, he's met with needy people. Can you imagine how you would respond in that situation? 
Like, think back to the last time that you were, like, super tired, super stressed. The world was, like, just cracking around you. And someone asked you for something. Jesus is met with a huge crowd of needs. Not just one person's needs, but a huge crowd of needs. I bet most of us, if we were in Jesus' shoes for a moment, and we needed time to be alone with God and to restore our soul, and we were met with a crowd of needy people, we would be like, are you kidding me? Can I just get like a second to breathe, to like restore my soul? I've literally been saving the world every day. Like that's Jesus. He's been healing people, doing miracles. Can the dude get a day alone? Like, are you kidding? Like, come on, can he just get a break? That's how I would respond. <laughs> Freaking chill for a moment, guys. You can be healed tomorrow. Thank God Jesus is not like me. Look at verse 14. Jesus doesn't respond by pushing them away and being like, I need time. Look at how Jesus responds in verse 14. When he got ashore and he saw the crowds, it says this in verse 14. This is so key. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. Something happened when Jesus saw the crowds. He was moved. This word compassion means like in the depth of his gut. Like his, his very like stomach just dropped. His soul broke for the needs of these people. And he began to heal their sick. This is the heart of Jesus. This is the heart of God. Self-sacrificial love. Jesus was not filled with a selfish ambition, like driving of what he needed to get where he wanted to go. But he models for us living a life full of the spirit of God. And I wonder if we're like, okay, cool, yeah, good, check. I knew that about Jesus, compassionate. I wonder if sometimes we read the story of the gospels like in Matthew and we come to church and we sit here and we hear like good things about Jesus and we're like, okay, yeah, I, I get that. Jesus was a good guy. Like we just check off facts that we learn about Jesus. And we miss the whole point that Jesus is modeling for us not just what he did on earth, but what he's calling us to do now as followers of Christ. Dallas Willard says this, and I think this, this kind of sums up the point. Discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he was you. Discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. Following Jesus, listening to the stories, is not just about learning what Jesus did. It's actually thinking now, okay, what does Jesus want to do through me? If you are a follower of Jesus, that means we're not Jesus. But as followers of Jesus, that does mean we are, through the Holy Spirit, becoming like Jesus. Romans 8.11 tells us that if the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, will he not give you life to your mortal bodies because of he's because of his spirit who lives in you, Jesus is modeling and giving an example of what it looks like to live a life full of the spirit. And he is calling us to do the same, but we'll, we'll get to that. Jesus continues to heal people all day long. 
Okay, you can picture the scene. He's off the boat. He's healing a big crowd of people. And he does this all day. You're going to sit in church for like 30 minutes. He's going to be ministering to people all day long until something happens. Again, verse 15. When evening came, this is a long day of just healing people. The disciples come up to him. They say, this place is deserted and it is already late. Here's what you need to do, Jesus. Send the crowds away so that they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Do you see what's happening? The disciples come together and they huddle up, a little strategy sesh, and they say, hey, Jesus, people are getting hungry. We need to do what? We need to send them away into the town for them to get food. Does that sound good? Like, you've been healing people all day. we got to send people away. And Jesus responds with this crazy, audacious thing that just that rocks me when I read this. Look at this. Look at, look at how Jesus responds. The disciples come to him and say, hey, the, we need to send the people away. And Jesus responds in 16 and says, they don't need to go away. I bet the disciples were like, say what? Like, I'm all right? So then what's the plan? And Jesus tells them, here's the plan. Look at this in verse 16. They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. I bet the disciples are like freaking out a little bit here. There are, what scripture tells us a little bit later, thousands of people. We've got maybe 200 here. There is roughly like 15,000 people in this vicinity. And Jesus looks at the 12 disciples and says, don't send them away. You guys give them something to eat. At first, I bet they like looked at each other and like laughed awkwardly. Like, <laughs> and then like Jesus kind of like grins, like just kind of like awkwardly. And they're like, oh, shoot, like he's serious. Like he legit wants to, because look at verse 17. Because then they respond like, like kind of shocked. Verse 17, they say, but we only have five loaves and two fish. Like they look at Jesus, who's like kind of just staring at them like, no, I'm serious. And they're like, oh, uh, Jesus, I hate to break it to you, but we've only got five loaves of bread and two fish. So again, the only real option, we got to send them away to the town so that they can go grab something to eat because that's all we've got. But, but here's my point with all this. Catch this. Jesus knows there is another solution to their problem other than worldly provision. Jesus knows there's another solution. And it's not a worldly provision. It's not to, to send them to the town. Jesus actually knows that there is heavenly provision for them. Look at verse 18. When they responded, this is all we've got. Jesus says, bring them here to me. This is like when your parents can't like figure out something on their phone and they're like really technologically like, like not good. And you're finally like, just, just bring it here. Like, just you, you're not going to figure it out. Bring it here to me. I'll, I'll fix it for you. Jesus is like, listen, you, you can't do this on your own. Just, just, give me, just bring it over here. Jesus tells them, I see your problem. Bring it here. And look at what he does. Look at what he does with their problem. Then he commanded the crowds to sit down on the grass. And he took five loaves and two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed them. He orders the crowd to sit down. That word sit down is actually the word recline. Like, like lean back. 
Like, this is not crisscross applesauce. You're about to get, like, a little Sunday school snack of goldfish. Like, recline. You're about to feast. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and gave them to the crowds. In verse 20, this is the miracle. Everyone ate and was satisfied. That term satisfied there in verse 20, this is the term uh, for, like, the same term as, like, livestock who are just eating a bunch of grain until they get to a place where they're just too full and they stop eating. They were satisfied. It's like post-Thanksgiving meal, like, shoot, dang, I couldn't eat for days. Like, I am so full, the only thing I can do is just take a nap now. This is complete satisfaction. So much so, like, not only did they eat to the point of fullness, Scripture says they picked up 12 baskets leftover of leftover pieces, now, those who ate were about 5,000 besides the women and children. So add the women, add the children, 15,000 people plus. And I love this scene so much, guys. What a beautiful scene of who Jesus is. This was Jesus bringing heaven to earth, living in a broken world. Do you see what he's doing here? This is a picture of Jesus restoring the garden. The Garden of Eden in Genesis 1, where people could eat till they're full, satisfied in the presence of God. Jesus was restoring the earth back to its original order. Fullness of joy, fullness of stomachs, fully experiencing God's provision. This is God's presence, so tangible that you can literally taste it. You can hear the laughter, you can hear... You see Jesus just passing, the disciples passing. This is Jesus recreating the world the way it should be. And the crowd left with full stomachs. But as I, I, I love this beautiful scene, and as I even just share about this miracle, man, it's, it's an incredible miracle. But something stuck out to me. I don't think that this miracle was necessarily for the crowds. Like, I realized the crowd benefited. They were filled. They were satisfied from it. But they didn't necessarily experience the miracle. Like, they just showed up and got food. The crowd left with full stomachs, but not necessarily, like, full of faith. Who are the ones who are truly changed by this miracle? It was the disciples. It was the disciples who presented their problem to Jesus. They, they ran to Jesus with a desperate situation and then saw God's miraculous provision. As Paul said, our church has kind of been homeless for a while. We're kind of just been like a little band of gypsies wandering around from like different fields. And, it, and man, it sounds like God has provided a way for us to have a building. Like a year from now, people are going to show up to Salt Church and walk in and be like, oh, like, nice. This is great. Like, oh, like you have a building or whatever. Like most normal churches. So maybe they won't say that. Maybe they'll just come to church. <laughs> but they'll walk in, and they'll benefit from the result of God providing, correct? Like they're going to sit indoors and not get eaten by mosquitoes or freezing or rained on. But they didn't necessarily benefit from the miracle. Like our, some of our pastors and our people have been praying, asking God to provide. Would you do something? And then we got an email. Here, here's the point of this. 
who were the ones who truly benefited from the miracle? It wasn't the people who just show up to sell church. It was the people who saw the problem, presented it to God, and asked God to provide. It was never really about a building in the first place. Like God put us in a position to bring us to a place where the only option was for Jesus to provide for us. It was actually to increase our faith. This is the point of the miracle. I think Jesus was showing the disciples something key, and I think he's showing us something key today for you to walk away with. The point of this miracle is for you to walk away believing that another way is possible. Like, do you ever wonder why the disciples looked at Jesus and were like, why did they suggest to send him to the town? Like, hey, Jesus, go to the town. These people need to eat. You ever wonder? No, you don't wonder that because that's what you do. Like, you go, if you're hungry, go get something to eat, right? And if you don't have food, you just go to Taco Bell or something. We don't wonder why the disciples respond with an earthly solution. Because food does not miraculously just appear out of nowhere, right? Nod your head if food just doesn't miraculously appear. And yet, Jesus is actually showing us something different than that. That food actually does miraculously appear. Jesus actually wants to show the disciples something that will change their perspective forever. That you don't have to send them away, that you give them something to eat. And the disciples look at Jesus, they look at each other, back at Jesus, back at each other, back at what they have, and they're like, all we've got is five loaves and two fish. This is not going to work. We can't provide for all those people. Jesus, isn't, that, isn't that kind of annoying of Jesus, though? Like, Jesus told them something that they can't do. You give them something to eat. How? Here's the point. His command was too much for them. And that's the point, to get them to a place of utter dependency on Jesus. It was in Jesus' command that they realized their powerlessness. It was in Jesus' calling that actually led them to lean on Jesus to provide. It's hearing Jesus telling you what to do, looking at what you've got, looking back up at Jesus, hands open, and saying, I, I, I can't. I can't do this. And this was exactly the posture Jesus wanted to get them, hands open, with the very little that they had, looking at him saying, I, I, I can't give them something to eat. It was a place of utter dependency. And we actually see that, I, I believe that we see that this is the point because uh, there's a story right after this of Peter, of Jesus doing another miracle. Quickly read with me, like this, right after the scene where he feeds the 5,000s, he's gonna again show his disciples something vital to their relationship to Jesus. Verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After dismissing the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. Well into the night, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat 
was already some distance from the land, battered by the waves because of the wind against them. Jesus came towards them walking on the sea very early in the morning. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Peter hears that and says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come on the waves or to come to you on the water. Bold move, Peter. Verse 29, Jesus looks at him and says, all right, come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand, caught a hold of him and said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshiped him and said, truly you are the son of God. There is a storm. Jesus walks on the water in the middle, early in the morning, still dark out. And they freak out and they think it's a ghost because people don't walk on water. That's just facts. But Jesus does. And Peter has the faith to say, Jesus, if it's you, then tell me to walk on water with you. And he does, and he begins to experience and participate in this miracle. But it was only when he doubted, when he took his eyes off of Jesus, looked at how dire his circumstances were, that he began to sink. What was Jesus showing them here? Jesus is showing his disciples that he is the provider for the miraculous. He has the power to do the impossible. He is trustworthy in the most trying situations and circumstances. And what happens when Jesus gets in the boat? What happens when there's wind all around him? Just picture this in your mind. They're in the middle of a storm and Jesus steps onto the boat and the winds and the waves just cease. And the disciples that say, said they worshiped him. Truly you are the son of God. Think back with me, just really quickly, think back. Matthew chapter eight, the same thing happens. Jesus calms the winds and the waves. And, and how do the disciples respond? They ask a question. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? couple chapters later, they're not asking who is this. They're worshiping. They see Jesus for who he truly is. Truly, you are the son of God. And they worship him. Jesus has been walking with them, revealing himself to them. It was a process. They didn't get it at first. But he was showing himself to them, revealing that he was unlike any man, that he was the son of God. And we know today what they finally saw. That Jesus is the son of God who lived and died and rose again victorious over the enemy. That he is alive and on the throne forever, bringing his kingdom to earth. We know that. But the people in the story, they're just starting to see that. Truly, you are the son of God. Okay, so church, with all of this, these stories, these miracles, where does that leave us today? How does this impact you going into Monday? Where do we go from here? My prayer, like I said from the beginning, is that you walk away with a different perspective on the world. 
that we as followers of Jesus begin, begin to see the world and its problems, not through a worldly perspective, but a heavenly one. That we begin to see the world around us like Jesus does. Here's what I mean. It's not hard for me to see problems in the world. It's not hard for me to see problems in my own life. It's not hard for me to see problems in our church. Just like the disciples, it was easy for them to see a problem. It was easy for them to feel helpless. But what is hard to do is to see a problem and believe that God can provide a different solution. It's hard to see that God can provide a different way than what we see with our eyes. When Jesus saw thousands of people who were hungry and in need of food, he didn't wonder how there was going to be food. He didn't see an impossible problem. Jesus saw an opportunity, a possibility for him to display God's love and compassion and power through his people. Here's my question. What if we as a church, as followers of Jesus, started to see problems in the world as possibilities for God to display his power and compassion through us? Like the problems that you face in your life that you come up with, what if you saw them not as helpless problems that will never get solved, immovable, impossible, But what if you saw them as a possibility for God to provide miraculously? Not just for you, but through you. What if we believed that Jesus actually meant, like actually meant it when he told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like, what if we believe that God wanted to use you to display his power and his compassion for the world? What if I told you that God wanted to use you to display his love, to display his compassion, to display his miraculous power to the world? How would that make you feel? If I told you that God wanted to use you it would probably drive you to a place of feeling inadequate. Me? You would probably look down at your hands just like the disciples and be like, Jesus, I've got only five fish. I'm just a mom. I'm just a professor. I'm just a nurse. I'm only a freshman. I've got half a sports management degree that I'm barely hanging on. I've got one person who's coming to my connection group. All we've got is a small group of college students that meets on top of a parking garage. All we've got is a church that meets on a flipping grass field. How are we going to fulfill your commandments to make disciples of all nations? How can we, how can we change the world? This is all we've got. And just like when, the G, when Jesus told his disciples, give them something to eat, we feel inadequate at the call to change the world, to be used by God. It drives us to a place of dis dependency. But guys, isn't that the place where God wants us? 
Isn't that the place he wants us to be? Didn't he tell them to do the impossible? Give thousands of people something to eat with five loaves and two fish just so that they could feel helpless and then he could tell them, bring it to me. Today, I think that's what God's calling us to do as a church, as a people. He's calling us to a place where we feel utterly and helplessly dependent on his power. He wants to get us to a place where we just need him to provide for us. To know that we can't do it on our own. And it is a gracious and beautiful offering that he says, just bring it here to me and I will provide what you need. So here's what we're gonna do. Right now we're gonna have some, uh, some of our elders, some of our leaders in our church they're gonna stand up. They're gonna actually come up to the front. And, and here's what I want us to do. The band's gonna come up and we're gonna, we're gonna continue in worship and we're gonna sing and we want you to worship. But we wanna also make available for you prayer from some of our people that we could pray together. Whatever it is that you've got going on in your life that you feel helpless, that you feel like you don't have the means to provide, we want to model what it looks like to humbly posture ourselves before the King of Kings, to humbly come and say, God, all I've got is five loaves and two fish, and I need your help. I can't do what you're calling me to do. I need you to provide, and that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna ask the King of Kings to provide for us because he can ch completely change our circumstance. He can change our situation. He can do the miraculous. If he can turn five loaves and two fish and feed thousands and thousands of people, he can take whatever you're facing in your life and provide the answer for you. I know this because if he can take someone like me who is broken because of sin and shed his blood on the cross and just by believing and confessing that he is Lord, completely wash me white as snow and give me new life in him. If he can do that, if he can take someone who was dead and bring them to life, he can provide for you. And so whatever it is in your life that you feel helpless, we wanna provide. We wanna open up a time to pray for you and pray with each other. We're gonna practice depending on God. So our worship team is gonna play and I invite you to come up with whatever you've got going on. Let's go to God together in worship and in prayer to provide for us. Would you stand with me, church? Let's worship and let's come to God in prayer. I invite you, whatever you've got going on, come and pray. Let's worship.